Section 20 of Starlight Ranch and Other Stories of Army Life on the Frontier by Charles King. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Story 5 Van, Part 1. He was the evolution of a military horse trade, one of those periodical swappings required of his dragoons by Uncle Sam on those rare occasions when a regiment that has been dry-rotting half a decade in Arizona is at last relieved by one from the plains. How it happened that we of the fifth should have kept him from the clutches of those sharp horse-fanciers of the sixth is more than I know. Regimental tradition had it that we got him from the third cavalry when it came our turn to go into exile in 1871. He was the victim of some temporary malady at the time, one of those multitudinous ills to which horse-flesh is heir, or he never would have come to us. It was simply impossible that anybody who knew anything about horses should trade off such a promising young racer so long as there remained an unpledged pay account in the officer's mess. Possibly the arid climate of Arizona had disagreed with him, and he had gone amiss, as would the mechanism of some of the best watches in the regiment, unable to stand the strain of anything so hot and high and dry. Possibly the third was so overjoyed at getting out of Arizona on any terms that they would gladly have left their eye-teeth in pawn. Whatever may have been the cause, the transfer was an accomplished fact, and Van was one of some seven hundred quadrupeds of greater or less value, which became the property of the 5th Regiment of Cavalry, USA, in lawful exchange for a like number of chargers left in the stables along the recently built Union Pacific to await the coming of their new riders from the distant west. We had never met in those days, Van and I, compadres and chums as we were destined to become, we were utterly unknown and indifferent to each other. But in point of regimental reputation at the time, Van had decidedly the best of it. He was a celebrity at headquarters, I a subaltern at an isolated post. He had apparently become acclimated, and was rapidly winning respect for himself and dollars for his backers. I was winning neither for anybody, and doubtless losing both. They go together somehow. Van was living on metaphorical clover down near Tucson. I was roughing it out on the rocks of the Mogollon. Each after his own fashion served out his time in the grim old territory, and at last came marching home again, and early in the summer of the centennial year, and just in the midst of the great Sioux War of 1876, Van and I made each other's acquaintance. What I liked about him was the air of thoroughbred ease with which he adapted himself to his surroundings. He was in swell society on the occasion of our first meeting, being bestridden by the colonel of the regiment. He was dressed and caparisoned in the height of martial fashion, his clear eyes, glistening coat, and joyous bearing spoke of the perfection of health. His every glance and movement told of elastic vigor and dauntless spirit. He was a horse with a pedigree, 
let alone any self made reputation, and he knew it. More than that, he knew that I was charmed at the first greeting. Probably he liked it. Possibly he liked me. What he saw in me I never discovered. Van, though demonstrative eventually, was reticent and little given to verbal flattery. It was long indeed before any degree of intimacy was established between us. Perhaps it might never have come but for the strange and eventful campaign on which we were so speedily launched. Probably we might have continued on our original status of dignified and distant acquaintance. As a member of the Colonel's household, he could have nothing in common with me or mine, and his acknowledgment of the introduction of my own charger, the cavalryman's better half, was of that airy yet perfunctory politeness which is of the club clubby. Forager, my grey, had sought acquaintance in his impulsive frontier fashion when summoned to the presence of the regimental commander, and ranging alongside to permit the shake of the hand with which the colonel had honoured his rider, he himself had with equine confidence addressed Van, and Van had simply continued his dreamy stare over the springy prairie and taken no earthly notice of him. Forager and I had just joined regimental headquarters for the first time, as was evident, and we were both fresh. It was not until the colonel good-naturedly stroked the glossy brown neck of his pet and said, Van, old oh boy, this is Forager of K Troop, that Van considered it the proper thing to admit my fellow to the outer edge of his circle of acquaintance. My grey thought him a supercilious snob, no doubt, and hated him. He hated him more before the day was half over, for the colonel decided to gallop down the valley to look at some new horses that had just come and invited me to go. Colonel's invitations are commands, and we went, Forager and I, though it was weariness and vexation of spirit to both. Van and his rider flew easily along, bounding over the springy turf with long elastic stride, horse and rider taking the rapid motion as an everyday matter, in a cool, imperturbable, this-is-the-way-we-always-do-it style, while my poor old troop-horse, in answer to pressing knee and pricking spur, strove with panting breath and jealously bursting heart to keep alongside. The foam flew from his fevered jaws and flecked the smooth flank of his apparently unconscious rival, and when at last we returned to camp, while Van, without a turned hair or an abnormal heave, coolly nodded off to his stable, poor Forager, blown, sweating, and utterly used up, gazed revengefully after him an instant, and then reproachfully at me. He had done his best, and all to no purpose. That confounded, clean-cut, supercilious beast had worn him out and never tried a spurt. It was then that I began to make inquiries about that airy fellow Van, and I soon found he had a history. Like other histories, it may have been a mere codification of lies, but the men of the fifth were ready to answer for its authenticity, and Van fully looked the character they gave him. He was now in his prime. 
He had passed the age of tell tale teeth and was going on between eight and nine, said the knowing ones, but he looked younger and felt younger. He was at heart as full of fun and frolic as any colt, but the responsibilities of his position weighed upon him at times and lent to his elastic step the grave dignity that should mark the movements of the first horse of the regiment. And then Van was a born aristocrat. He was not impressive in point of size, he was rather small in fact, but there was that in his bearing and demeanour that attracted instant attention. He was beautifully built, lithe, sinewy, muscular, with powerful shoulders and solid haunches. His legs were what Oscar Wilde might have called poems, and with better reason than when he applied the epithet to those of Henry Irving. They were straight, slender, and destitute of those heterodox developments at the joints that render equine legs as hideous deformities as knee-sprung trousers of the present mode. His feet and pasterns were shapely and dainty as those of the senoritas, only for pastern read ankle, who so admired him on fiesta days at Tucson, and who won such stores of dulces from the scowling gallants who had with genuine Mexican pluck backed the senora horses at the races. His color was a deep dark chocolate brown, a most unusual tint, but Van was proud of its oddity, and his long lean head, his pretty little pointed ears, his bright flashing eye, and sensitive nostril, one and all, spoke of spirit and intelligence. A glance at that horse would tell the veriest greenhorn that speed, bottom, and pluck were all to be found right here, and he had not been in the regiment a month before the knowing ones were hanging about the Mexican sports and looking out for a chance for a match, and Mexicans, like Indians, are consummate horse racers. Not with the greasers alone had tact and diplomacy to be brought into play. Van, though invoiced as a troop-horse sick, had attracted the attention of the colonel from the very start, and the colonel had speedily caused him to be transferred to his own stable, where, carefully tended, fed, groomed, and regularly exercised, he speedily gave evidence of the good there was in him. The colonel rarely rode in those days, and cavalry duties in garrison were few. The regiment was in the mountains most of the time, hunting Apaches, but Van had to be exercised every day, and exercised he was. Jeff, the colonel's orderly, would lead him sedately forth from his paddock every morning about nine, and ride demurely off towards the quartermaster's stable in rear of the garrison. Keen eyes used to note that Van had a way of sidling along at such times as though his heels were too impatient to keep at their appropriate distance behind the head, and Jeff's hand on the bit was very firm, light as it was. "'Bet you what you like, those L Company fellows are getting Van in training for a race,' said the quartermaster to the adjutant one bright morning and the chuckle with which the latter received the remark was an indication that the news was no news to him. If old coach don't find it out too soon, some of these swaggering caballeros round here are going to lose their last winnings, was his answer. 
and, true to their cavalry instincts, neither of the staff officers saw fit to follow Van and his rider beyond the gate to the corrals. Once there, however, Jeff would bound off quick as a cat, Van would be speedily taken in charge by a squad of old dragoon sergeants, his cavalry bridle and saddle exchanged for a light racing rig, and Master Mickey Lanagan, son and heir of the regimental saddle sergeant, would be hoisted into his throne, and then Van would be led off, all plunging impatience now, to an improvised race-track across the arroyo, where he would run against his previous record, and where old horses from the troop stables would be spurred into occasional spurts with the champion, while all the time vigilant noncoms would be thrown out as pickets far and near to warn off prying Mexican eyes and give notice of the coming of officers. The colonel was always busy in his office at that hour, and interruptions never came. But the race did, and more than one race, too, occurring on Sundays, as Mexican races will, and well-nigh wrecking the hopes of the garrison on one occasion, because of the colonel's sudden freak of holding a long-mounted inspection on that day. Had he ridden Van for two hours under his heavy weight and housings that morning, all would have been lost. There was terror at Tucson when the cavalry trumpets blew the call for mounted inspection, full dress, that placid Sunday morning, and the sporting sergeants were well-nigh crazed. Not an instant was to be lost. Jeff rushed to the stable, and in five minutes had Van's near forefoot enveloped in a huge poultice, much to Van's amaze and disgust and when the colonel came down booted and spurred and prepared for a ride there stood jeff in martial solemnity holding the colonel's other horse and looking as did the horse the picture of dejection what did you bring me that infernal old hearse-horse for said the colonel where's van in the stable dead lame general said jeff with face of woe but with diplomatic use of the brevet can't put his nigh forefoot to the ground, sir. I've got it poulticed, sir, and he'll be all right in a day or two. Sure it ain't a nail, broke in the colonel, to whom nails in the foot were sources of perennial dread. Perfectly sure, General, gasped Jeff. Damned sure, he added in a tone of infinite relief, as the colonel rode out on the broad parade. Twould have been nails in the coffins of half the fifth cavalry if it had been. But that afternoon, while the colonel was taking his siesta, half the populace of the good old Spanish town of Tucson was making the air blue with carambas when Van came galloping under the string, an easy winner over half a score of Mexican steeds. The dark horse became a notoriety, and for once in its history headquarters of the 5th Cavalry felt the forthcoming visit of the paymaster to be an object of indifference van won other races in arizona no more betting could be got against him around tucson but the colonel went off on leave and he was borrowed down at camp Bowie a while and then transferred to crittenden only temporarily of course for no one at headquarters would part with him for good then when the regiment made its homeward march across the continent in eighteen seventy five van somehow turned up at the festa races at albuquerque and santa fe 
though the latter was off the line of march by many miles. Then he distinguished himself at Pueblo by winning a handicap sweepstakes, where the odds were heavily against him. And so it was that when I met Van at Fort Hayes in May 1876, he was a celebrity. Even then they were talking of getting him down to Dodge City to run against some horses on the Arkansas. But other and graver matters turned up. Van had run his last race. Early that spring, or rather late in the winter, a powerful expedition had been sent to the north of Fort Fetterman in search of the hostile bands led by that daredevil Sioux chieftain, Crazy Horse. On Patrick's day in the morning, with the thermometer indicating thirty degrees below, and in the face of a biting wind from the north and a blazing glare from the sheen of the untrodden snow, the cavalry came in sight of the Indian encampment down in the valley of Powder River. The fight came off then and there, and, all things considered, Crazy Horse got the best of it. He and his people drew away farther north to join other roving bands. The troops fell back to Fetterman to get a fresh start, and when spring fairly opened, old Gray Fox, as the Indians called General Crook, marched a strong command up to the Bighorn Mountains, determined to have it out with Crazy Horse, and settled the question of supremacy before the end of the season. Then all the unoccupied Indians in the north decided to take a hand. All or most of them were bound by treaty obligations to keep the peace with the government that for years past had fed, clothed, and protected them. Nine-tenths of those who rushed to the rescue of Crazy Horse and his people had not the faintest excuse for their breach of faith but it requires neither eloquence nor excuse to persuade the average Indian to take the war-path. The reservations were beset by vehement old strife-mongers preaching a crusade against the whites, and by early June there must have been five thousand eager young warriors under such leaders as Crazy Horse, Gaul, Little Big Man, and all manner of wolves, bears, and bulls, and prominent among the latter that head-devil, scheming, lying, wire-pulling, big-talker-but-no-fighter, sitting-bull, Tatanka Iyotanka, five thousand fierce and eager Indians, young and old, swarming through the glorious upland between the Bighorn and the Yellowstone, and more a-coming. Crook had reached the headwaters of Tongue River, with perhaps twelve hundred cavalry and infantry, and found that something must be done to shut off the rush of reinforcements from the southeast. Then it was that we of the fifth, far away in Kansas, were hurried by rail through Denver to Cheyenne, marched thence to the Black Hills to cut the trails from the great reservations of Red Cloud and Spotted Tail to the disputed ground of the northwest. And here we had our own little personal tussle with the Cheyennes, and induced them to postpone their further progress toward Sitting Bull, and to lead us back to the reservation. It was here, too, that we heard how Crazy Horse had pounced on Crook's columns on the bluffs of the Rosebud that sultry morning of the 17th of June, and showed the Gray Fox that he and his people were too weak in numbers to cope with them. It was here, too, worse luck, we got the tidings of the dread disaster of the Sunday one week later, and listened in awed silence 
to the story of Custer's mad attack on ten times his weight in foes, and the natural result. Then came our orders to hasten to the support of Crook, and so it happened that July found us marching for the storied range of the Bighorn, and the first week in August landed us, blistered and burned with sun-glare and stifling alkali dust in the welcoming camp of Crook. Then followed the memorable campaign of 1876. I do not mean to tell its story here. We set out with ten days' rations on a chase that lasted ten weeks. We roamed some eighteen hundred miles over range and prairie, over badlands and worse waters. We wore out some Indians, a good many soldiers, and a great many horses. We sometimes caught the Indians, and sometimes they caught us. It was hot, dry summer weather when we left our wagons, tents, and extra clothing. It was sharp and freezing before we saw them again. And meantime, without a rag of canvas or any covering to our backs, except what summer clothing we had when we started, we had tramped through the valleys of the Rosebud, Tongue, and Powder Rivers, had loosened the teeth of some men with scurvy before we struck the Yellowstone, had weeded out the wounded and ineffective there, and sent them to the east by river, had taken a fresh start and gone rapidly on in pursuit of the scattering bands, had forded the little Missouri near where the northern Pacific now spans the stream, run out of rations entirely at the head of Hart River, and still stuck to the trail and the chase, headed southward over rolling treeless prairies, and for eleven days and nights of pelting pitiless rain dragged our way through the badlands, meeting and fighting the Sioux two lively days among the rocks of Slim Buttes, subsisting, meantime, partly on what game we could pick up, but mainly upon our poor, famished, worn-out, staggering horses. It is hard truth for cavalrymen to tell, but the choice lay between them and our boots, and most of us had no boots left by the time we sighted the Black Hills. Once there we found provisions and plenty, but never, I venture to say, never was civilized army in such a plight as was the command of General George Crook when his brigade of regulars halted on the north bank of the Belle Fourche in September 1876. Officers and men were ragged, haggard, half-starved, worn down to mere skin and bone, and the horses, ah, well, only half of them were left. Hundreds had dropped, starved, and exhausted on the line of march, and dozens had been killed and eaten. We had set out blithe and merry, riding jauntily down the wild valley of the Tongue. We straggled in towards the hills, towing our tottering horses behind us. They had long since grown too weak to carry a rider. Then came a leisurely saunter through the hills. Crook bought up all the provisions to be had in Deadwood and other little mining towns, turned over the command to General Merritt, and hastened to the forts to organize a new force, leaving to his successor instructions to come in slowly, giving horses and men time to build up. Men began building up fast enough. We did nothing but eat, sleep, and hunt grass for our horses for whole weeks at a time. But our horses, ah, that was different. There was no grain to be had for them. 
They had been starving for a month, for the Indians had burned the grass before us wherever we went, and here in the pine-covered hills what grass could be found was scant and wiry, not the rich, juicy, strength-giving bunch-grass of the open country. Of my two horses, neither was in condition to do military duty when we got to Whitewood. I was adjutant of the regiment, and had to be bustling around a good deal, and so it happened that one day the colonel said to me, "'Well, here's Van. He can't carry my weight any longer. Suppose you take him and see if he won't pick up.' And that beautiful October day found the racer of the regiment, though the ghost of his former self, transferred to my keeping. All through the campaign we had been getting better acquainted, Van and I. The colonel seldom rode him, but had him led along with the headquarters party in the endeavor to save his strength. A big raw-boned colt, whom he had named Chunka Witko, in honor of the Sioux Crazy Horse, the hero of the summer, had the honor of transporting the colonel over most of those weary miles and Van spent the long days on the muddy trail in wondering when and where the next race was to come off, and whether at this rate he would be fit for a finish. One day, on the Yellowstone, I had come suddenly upon a quartermaster who had a peck of oats on his boat. Oats were worth their weight in greenbacks, but so was plug tobacco. He gave me half a peck for all the tobacco in my saddle-bags, and, filling my old campaign hat with the precious grain, I sat me down on a big log by the flowing Yellowstone, and told poor old Donnybrook to pitch in. Donnybrook was a spare horse when we started on the campaign, and had been handed over to me after the fight on the war bonnet, where Merritt turned their own tactics on the Cheyennes. He was sparer still by this time and later, when we got to the muddy banks of the Hichawapka, there was nothing to spare of him. The headquarters party had dined on him the previous day, and only groaned when that Mark Tapley of a surgeon remarked that if this was Donnybrook Fair, it was tougher than all the stories ever told of it. Poor old Donnybrook! He had recked not of the coming woe that blissful hour by the side of the rippling Yellowstone. His head was deep in my lap, his muzzle buried in oats. He took no thought for the morrow. He would eat, drink, and be merry, and ask no questions as to what was to happen. And so absorbed were we in our occupation, he in his happiness, I in the contemplation thereof, that neither of us noticed the rapid approach of a third party, until a whinny of astonishment sounded close beside us, and Van— trailing his lariat and picket-pin after him, came trotting up, took in the situation at a glance, and unhesitatingly ranging alongside his comrade of coarser mould, and thrusting his velvet muzzle into my lap, looked wistfully into my face with his great soft brown eyes, and pleaded for his share. Another minute, and despite the churlish snappings and threatening heels of Donnybrook, Van was supplied with a portion as big as little Benjamin's, and, stretching myself beside him on the sandy shore, I lay and watched his enjoyment. From that hour he seemed to take me into his confidence, and his was a friendship worth having. 
Time and again on the march to the Little Missouri and southward to the hills he indulged me with some slight but unmistakable proof that he held me in esteem and grateful remembrance. It may have been only a bid for more oats, but he kept it up long after he knew there was not an oat in Dakota, that part of it at least. But Van was awfully pulled down by the time we reached the Pine Barrens up near Deadwood. The scanty supply of forage there, obtained at starvation price, would not begin to give each surviving horse in the three regiments a mouthful. And so by short stages we plodded along through the picturesque beauty of the wild black hills, and halted at last in the deep valley of French Creek. Here there was grass for the horses and rest for the men. End of section 20